everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. We have a very special guest in studio with us all hour today. You may know Maria Hinojosa from Latino USA, which airs right here on WDET on Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 10 p.m. Maria is in town here in Detroit, and you can see her in person tonight at the Senate Theater at 7. She and I are going to be joined by Julio Ricardo Varela of the In the Thick podcast to talk about the elections, about immigration, and a host of other issues. And we're going to record that conversation for an episode of the In the Thick podcast. For all the info on that event, you can head to WDET.org slash events. And I want to welcome Ria Inahosa back to Detroit and back to WDET. Maria, it is great. That's right. I was going to say, you need to say welcome back. <laughs> That's right. You I'm not have a stranger been here. to Detroit or WDET or to this show. No, we it's great are, to be here, Steve. We are very Good to glad. see you in person. Yeah, we're very glad you're here and to be able to talk with you this morning. A big morning, of course, in, in, in national politics. And we're going to get to that in just a second. We're also going to talk more with Maria throughout the hour about her experience here in Detroit. She has been here already for a full day reporting in Southwest Detroit had a lot of interesting experiences that we'll want to that we'll want to talk about. But up first, of course, yesterday was Super Tuesday, and we want to start the conversation there. There were primary elections in 14 states, and here to explain the implications of the results in relation to the remaining 2020 Democratic candidates is Washington Post national political correspondent Philip Bump. Philip, welcome back to Detroit today. Thank you very much. So thank okay. you very much. Yes. All right. So, Philip, let's start with your recap of last night. Uh, sure. Joe Biden got up off the canvas and uh, did things that I am not sure everybody thought he was going to be capable of doing. Oh, yeah. I mean, to, to extend your analogy, he got up off the canvas and then performed some WWE moves that no one had ever seen before. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a remarkable turnaround. One week ago, I don't think anyone would have predicted uh, that Joe Biden would have won more than maybe one or two states yesterday. Uh, it certainly seemed as though Sanders was on his way, Bernie Sanders from Vermont was on his way to building a pretty substantial delegate lead. And then we come out of Tuesday, and as of right now, before California's done counting, it looks like Biden's going to be in the delegate lead. And really what this story is, is it's a story that we saw four years ago, which is that there were a lot of more moderate voters in the South and a lot of black voters in the South who, uh, with whom Sanders never resonated. Sanders was just not able to make inroads then. He was not able to make inroads this time. And first, that spurred Biden's turnaround in South Carolina on Saturday. And then that really powered this massive shift in the race that we've seen over the past three or four days that led to Biden picking up even states like Minnesota and Massachusetts, where, again, a week ago, it seemed like the story was going to be Sanders beating Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar on their home turf. One week later, Biden's won both of them and Klobuchar's endorsed endorsed Biden. It's it's just a fascinating and very, very rapid turnaround. Hmm. Uh, Were there any surprises or upsets? Yeah, I mean... Other, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure I could say there are any upsets beyond the Biden story because there were so many upsets that were part of the Biden story. <laughs> right. Right? I mean, I think it's uh, one of the things that's sort of fascinating to watch is, I mean, California is obviously going to be uh, one of the most significant uh, uh, prizes from yesterday. And Sanders really got lucky to a large extent because California has a lot of uh, early vote and absentee vote. And so he was able to bank a lot of votes prior to Election Day and prior to this big Biden turnaround that really, I think, probably will end up having saved the state for him. Uh, 
So essentially, the upset is to some extent that Biden didn't do better simply because his turnaround happened so quickly. And we saw an exit polling time after time. If you ask people when they made up their mind uh, to who they were going to support, people who said they made up their mind last week or earlier generally supported Bernie Sanders. People said they made up their mind the last three days and state after state after state constantly. Biden, 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 Biden. Hmm. Uh, I want to bring Maria, you know, host of the host of uh, Latino USA into this conversation with this next question. So the New York Times has this map on on the front page today that really caught my attention. And it just shows all of the states uh, that there have been primaries in so far and colors them according to who won. So you you, you have uh, Biden sweeping across the South from Virginia, sort of over to Texas, uh, and of course, up into the Northeast. But then the further west you go, starting with Texas, the more it gets into Sanders territory. And the thing that stood out to me about that map is if you think of the demographics of those states, right? Uh, you, Philip, you were just talking about the huge African-American populations in the South. But as you go west, you start to pick up states that have larger Latino populations. So Colorado, uh, Nevada, California, and of course, and of course, Texas. And I wonder if that's maybe an emerging narrative in the Democratic Party about how how people are making sense of of this field. Do Latinos see this fundamentally differently than than African Americans? Uh, Maria, I'll start with you. All right. So the, so Julio Ricardo Varela, who's my co-anchor of In the Thick, which we'll be recording live tonight with you tonight, um, he likes to say, you know, the states you just mentioned, Nevada, Colorado. California, Texas. <laughs> right. They're all, you understand? They all have Latino names. They right? all have Spanish names. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is a moment. Everybody's talking about that map. Everybody is talking about that graphic. It's being, you know, sent around just like, okay, look, this is what it looks like. I'm, you know, I'm. we're processing all of this, right? If you think of what is usually said about the black vote, and of course, it's complicated, it's complex, it's wide, but you know, the kind of strategic decision-making that goes into the black voter who can take Donald Trump down the most. Mm -hmm. For me, South Carolina said something, which I guess is followed by North Carolina and some of these other Southern states, which is loyalty. I wasn't really kind of thinking about that. So there's an element of loyalty potentially to the mainstream of the Democratic Party. But, you know, there is one problem in terms of, of... the way I see the Biden turnaround, which is, it is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Is it really a, a, a resounding win for Biden? Or was it simply that the voters has had fewer choices? Because of the people who had uh, Because out. of the people, and I don't like saying this, but but at the same time, this I think is the, the central challenge to the Biden campaign, which is, but how are you gonna make people really wanna vote for you? What are you gonna do? And he's got, let's say, whatever happens with Biden right now, he's got a Latino challenge. Mm-hmm. He has got to work to get that voter, which I think all of us uh, Latino political analysts who are watching this, you know, we are saying this is a vote that is aspirational. They will respond when you touch them mm. the way Sanders the campaign basically organized itself, which is like, no, this is going to be one of the keys to our win. We are going to integrate them in everything we do. Door knocking is going to happen. Not so much ad buys in Spanish, for example, 
door, door knocking, knocking. Right. door knocking. Oígame, ¿sabes el tío Sam? Del, del tío Sam, no, del tío Bernie. <laughs> del tío Bernie, del abuelito Bernie, del viejito, you know. Um, so... And has Sanders, in your opinion, been more effective at that so far? Yes. I mean, um, just if you look at the at, at the way the numbers have gone, he has been more effective. That is, Latino, Latina voters delivered Nevada for him, which was huge yeah. in terms of the short trajectory of what feels like an eternity now in these primaries. <laughs> right, right, that was ages ago. <laughs> Latino and Latina voters are central to the Bernie Sanders uh, coalition, if you will, and whatever happens with um, with Biden, the the number, the percentage of Latino voters has per surpassed African American voters as the largest quote unquote people of color. I don't like to use the term minority ever, but you know, so it's it's larger than the African American vote now. Uh, the sleeping giant has awoken. Yeah, yeah. Some people are saying, "Yo, go back to sleep. Take some Nyquil. <laughs> take you know, take some Nyquil." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Philip Bump, what do you make of, of this emerging, I guess, dichotomy, at least, within the Democratic Party in terms of candidate preference and, and demographics? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is something that has emerged uh, really very much in over the course of this primary season. And, and as such, uh, it's sort of uh, it's very young. It's sort of it's, we're at a nascent stage and it's a little hard to draw too many lessons from it. I, I think it's uh, there are a few things I'd say. The first is that one of the challenges to uh, the uh, the 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 tension between who uh, exhibits more political power between the Hispanic vote and the black vote is that black voters tend to vote more heavily than do Hispanic voters, which I think is significant. I think it's also important to note that that uh, uh, Hispanic Americans tend to be younger, uh, and that I think also helps to provide some of the overlap between Hispanic support uh, and Bernie Sanders support. Uh, I, I will say, though, that, that one of the things that I think is important to take out of yesterday is what happened in Texas. And so in Texas, we saw that Bernie Sanders did well with mm -hmm. Hispanic voters. He won a plurality of the Hispanic vote according to preliminary exit polling. He won an outright majority of young Hispanic voters. But he also fared 10 points worse in Texas among white voters than he had in 2016. He did about as well with black voters. Uh, that combination meant that he was not able to win the state. So he did better than he did in 2016. But because he dropped uh, among white voters, that meant that he wasn't able to actually win. And I think that's sort of another subtext to what we're seeing play out in this Biden versus Sanders uh, fight is that while Bernie Sanders, I mean, his, his 2016 campaign was largely predicated on his strength with certain groups of white voters. And the reason that he lost was because he was not able to make strong inroads, particularly with black voters in 2016. What we're seeing now is that Biden has some strength with white voters who Sanders did well with in 2016. And that itself poses a long-term problem for Sanders' candidacy. Mm. Uh, my guests are Philip Bump, a national political correspondent for The Washington Post, and Maria Hinojosa, who is an award-winning journalist, news anchor, and author. She is host of Latino USA, which you hear right here on WDET on Saturday mornings at 7 and Wednesday nights at 10. She's in town for a very special event that we're having tonight at the Senate Theater at 7 p.m. She and I and Julio Varela are going to talk about Super Tuesday and politics and immigration in southwest Detroit, all kinds of issues. You can go to WDET.org slash events to find information and tickets about that event. Uh, right now, if you want to join the conversation, we're talking about what happened yesterday in Super Tuesday, all of the states that voted, and Joe Biden making an impressive showing in those states after having not done so well in the primaries that we've had so far in the Democratic presidential 
primary season, uh, give us a call. Tell us what you think about how things played out on Super Tuesday. Uh, did you expect a bigger voter turnout for Sanders or Warren? Have your feelings changed maybe about Joe Biden as he went from lagging behind the field to stepping out as the current front runner? Also, give us a call and tell us how this informs your decision making about next Tuesday when we will go to the polls and cast our ballots in the Democratic presidential primary. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's start with Chuck in Franklin. Chuck, welcome to the program. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Um, my comment uh, and question today is a process one. It's not about any of the candidates. Um, it seems to me, and I'm cribbing here from a Jonah Goldberg column that was published overnight, mm-hmm. um, what a failure this has been for the early voting process. Um, hundreds of thousands of American voters uh, over the last month voted for candidates who aren't even running as of the time of the election. Um, In Minnesota, there were thousands of Klobuchar votes. In California, there were thousands of votes for, I I think the California ballot um, had half, half of the names in the Democratic primary had dropped out by election day. Mm. Uh, Chuck, that's a really interesting issue, and and it's one that that I have to say I hadn't been thinking of until until you just brought it up. I do wonder whether uh, that has an effect on on the outcomes uh, in 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 the way that that, that you're imagining. Uh, Marie, you know, who's to talk about? So uh, one thing that um, one thing that came up yesterday when I was reporting um, here on the streets of Southwest Detroit is. Um, this notion that actually because Detroit uh, and Michigan now you can do absentee ballots mm-hmm. in the state for any reason for any reason and that community organizers are actually using this as a way to engage new voters look it's right here the papers right here you can fill it out do it in the privacy of your own home put it in the mail as a way of trying to engage the voter here in this state so on the one hand I think absentee ballots are so important um, it, let's say, in trying to engage new voters in a way that maybe feels safer or easier for them. <clears throat> but on the other hand, he's raising a really important question. What do you do with with all of those yeah. votes that were thrown literally thrown away now? they don't they don't matter right. Um, but I'm not I'm, I'm not the best person on policy, so I'm like, hmm, and how would you even <laughs> change that? Right. Although I think there there are bigger issues around the Democratic Party as a machine and how it's kind of operating things in general that a lot of people have just as we're watching this primary season play out. We should also remind listeners that here in Michigan, if you did vote absentee and cast a ballot for somebody who's no longer in the race, you can actually spoil that ballot and recast it up until the day before the primary next week. So you don't have to not have your vote count if you did vote uh, early. Uh, Philip Bump, talk about this this new wave of early voting that is right. happening not just here in Michigan, but in lots of states, and and what we're supposed to do with votes that are cast for candidates who aren't running anymore. 
Right. So I, I'd say two things. The first is that it is always the case that you are, there are going to be people who regret how they voted, right? I'm, sure. You know, after the 2016 <laughs> general election, I'm sure there were lots of people who regretted how they voted. Think about all the voters in Iowa who voted for Pete Buttigieg. Or I shouldn't say Iowa because it's such a such a mess. <laughs> Let's say New Hampshire. All the people who voted for Pete Buttigieg <laughs> and Amy Klobuchar. I mean, yes, their votes weighed in in terms of the delegate counts there, but essentially they were voting for people who didn't really have a real shot. And I think when you balance that with the benefits of early voting, which essentially is making sure that we get as many people people as possible participating in the process, people who maybe you have to work on election day, people who maybe only have a brief window when they can get to the polls. All of those benefits that derive from people being able to cast their ballots. I mean, there are, in California, for example, there are far, far, far more people who voted for Sanders and Biden early than there are who voted for Amy Klobuchar or you know whoever else that may no longer be on the ballot. And those people may not have been able to cast a ballot on Tuesday. And so I think that's the balance. And yes, to the caller's point, yes, it is, it is not ideal if you are a Pete Buttigieg supporter in California who cast your ballot and all of a sudden he's not in the race anymore. But I think that that is counterweighed by the fact that so many other people did get to have their voices heard where they might otherwise not be. And again, buyer's remorse is part of voting. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks much for the call and the comments, Chuck. Let's go to Corey in Ferndale. Corey, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, good morning. Hey. Um, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in and what we've been seeing over the last couple of days is with regards to turnout and, you know, Bernie sort of premising his his whole argument on the fact that he can turn voters out, but really seeing this bump in turnout in places where Biden's doing really well, hmm. you know, in these suburbs and um, and places where, frankly, we, we Democrats, I, I'm a Democrat, uh, won in 2018, you know, so I guess I'm interested to hear uh, the panel's thoughts on that. Yeah, no, great question, Corey. Thanks very much for the call. Philip Bump, talk about turnout and what role it played yesterday and how that might be different from the way that we've expected turnout to, to influence this election. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really well-taken point. I actually looked at this yesterday, even before voting, uh, uh, before results started to come in on Super Tuesday. And Sanders has performed worse in each of the four contests that preceded Super Tuesday than he did uh, in 2016. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, th- th- while that is in, func- uh, in part a function of the fact that there's a bigger field, it is also it runs contrary to his value proposition, which is I will get people to come out to the polls and vote. That's how I will beat Donald Trump. That's how I will build a big progressive coalition on Capitol Hill is by getting these people to come out and vote. And that's simply not what happened over the course of the first four contests. And then on Super Tuesday, we did see, as the caller said, big surges in turnout in, for example, Virginia, where Biden absolutely crushed Bernie Sanders. We saw surges in North Carolina, and we saw surges in places that are not Sanders-based places. Hmm. And I will note, too, that this also... Uh, is one of the points that is made by people who are worried about Sanders being the general election nominee, that he will spur turnout of people who don't like Sanders. And I think some of what we saw yesterday is there are places that are worried about Sanders being the nominee and were driven to turn out out of that concern. Again, part of the concern about Bernie Sanders as a general election uh, candidate is that there would be so many Republicans who otherwise would be sitting on the fence who are like, oh, no, I don't want this guy as my president, that they would come out Mm. and vote. It seems as though there may be some of that in the primary already. Mm. Uh, Maria? Yeah, I think that this is the central question, right? It is the turnout question. It is the enthusiasm question. I, I have a lot of 
um, questions about how do you and and by by the way we all know so all of us who are doing this it's like you know I, I'm feeling bad that last week on MSNBC I think I said something well I don't really see a way that Joe Biden can kind of turn this <laughs> way. it's like okay you so, weren't alone in that <laughs> you know so but things can change right but how do you assure that you have the enthusiasm which is it is a part of this country right to be a rebel to be kind of questioning, to always pushing kind of left in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you kind of marry that with the issue of uh, the feeling of we just want something that's going to that's that's safe against, you know, Donald Trump? I'm not sure. I think I, I hope that this is one of the big questions that, that the party itself is trying to address, although I, I doubt it. Right. Because I think that they're just kind of in the moment. But this is it. How are you going to get those young people who have been so enthusiastic for Bernie, let's say, yeah. to turn out for a Joe Biden candidacy if it turns out that way? And likewise, how do you get those suburban folks, the women, to turn out for Bernie Sanders if he turns out to be the candidate? And that is, to me, the thing that I'm like, hmm, how do you do that? How do you do that? Yeah. Uh, let, let's quickly go to Stephanie Inovi. She's got a comment that I think really hits right on the point that we're talking about. Stephanie, go ahead. Hi. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? So I am a, a wholeheartedly a Bernie Sanders supporter. I love his idealism. I love his progressiveness. Yet I don't think the country is ready for it. I think maybe 20, 20 years down the line, people will, will be ready for his ideas. <laughs> but I don't think he can draw the moderate votes that are needed to take the White House back and ultimately we want to win the presidency as a, as a Democrat. I do. So I don't think that the country is quite ready for Bernie. I do think that in order for Joe Biden to pull some of Bernie's supporters, he does need to start talking about the government working for the people. I mean, as somebody who pays taxes, yes, I'm, I'm happy to pay my taxes, but I also want that money working for me. Um, and yeah, we're, we're spending a lot of money on health insurance and deductibles and premiums. And I do think that Joe needs to start talking about pulling some of Sanders voters in by talking about those, oh. those subjects. So, so, Stephanie, before I let you go, tell me what you're going to do on Tuesday, the 10th, when we go vote. Are you going to vote your conscience or are you going to vote strategically? As of right now, I'm still on the fence. I'm going to let this week <laughs> play out, kind of see what happens with, um, you know, if other people drop out, um, what Bernie has to say. But more than likely... I did vote Bernie in 2016. I do think I'll probably vote Biden. Yeah. Wow. Whoa. Wow. Stephanie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is this, something. Is, this is what I, I love about the American. I mean, I love and also it's like your brain is constantly exploding because you're just like, wait, what? I mean, yesterday <laughs> I got in a car here in Detroit and it was an African-American man, probably 40 years old. His mother is for Elizabeth Warren. He was not pleased with the Democratic candidates. He was watching Fox News in his car, and he said, you know, I don't. if there's no one here from the Democrats that kind of really speaks to me, I'm not really feeling it, I'll vote for Trump. And I'm just like... Oh, you're kidding. And wow. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Why? And he said, you know, the economy's okay. It's okay for me. I mean, he's driving a Lyft, right. so is that a good, you know, but okay. It's work. By the way, love all my Lyft drivers. I learn a lot from yeah, all of you. Yeah. But... Um, it was just, I was like, what? Yeah. And I, so when I'm out in on the road, which I am a lot, I make no assumptions. 
and I try to maintain all of my political. And by the way, I ask everyone, everyone who I can. So who are you voting right. for? Right. How are you? How are you sorting are through you, all of this? And right? I and I'm just not surprised. But I think for a party like the Democrats right now, <laughs> this is probably one of the frustrating things is that it's hard to kind of pin down. Yeah, uh, Philip Bump. Before we break, uh, tell us quickly how you think. Joe Biden will be able to do what someone like Stephanie was talking about, appeal to Bernie Sanders voters, uh, reach across to these demographics where he's not doing as well. So I was very much a proponent of this argument for how the Democrats needed to win in 2020 up until about five months ago, (laughs) that there are 4.4 million 2012 Obama voters who stayed home in 2016, a third of them black. And I was really thinking about how is it, if the Democrats want to win, how do they get those voters to come out to the polls? I think that my, my thinking on this has shifted in part seeing the response to Bernie Sanders. And one of the things to keep in mind is that Bernie Sanders supporters are not by nature people who go to the polls very often. They are tend to be younger voters. Younger voters don't vote for a variety of reasons uh, that deal with the fact that voting is a habit, that it's linked to you know job stability and income and home ownership and things along those lines. And so there are a lot of reasons why young people don't vote. But I think that what Biden brings to this race is First of all, that he can capture some of the vote that Trump won in 2016. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I was very much like a guy who three months ago would have been like, oh, everyone's looking at this through the lens of 2016, and maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. And now I'm increasingly thinking maybe that is the right <laughs> way to look at it. Um, but that said, I also think that uh, what Joe Biden is going to be able to take advantage of that Hillary Clinton, Clinton couldn't in 2016 is this sense among Democrats that, like, we have got to win this race, right? In 2016, there was very much a sense of, yes, we don't want Trump to be the president. Hillary Clinton's going to win this thing. Look at the polls, yada, yada, yada. That sense, I think, has evaporated. I think in 2018, we saw a response to that across the country. And I think that that combined with the fact that getting young people to vote in general is hard. uh, And I'm not sure that even if Bernie Sanders is the candidate that he's going to be able to pull those folks out, given what we've seen so far in the primary, uh, I think that it may be a less urgent need for Biden than it may seem. Okay, Philip Bump, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. It is always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for coming by. Thank you very much, sir. All right, we're going to take a quick break. and we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Maria Inahosa. We're going to talk more about her visit to Detroit this week and what she's hearing from folks here. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. We'll continue to talk with you as well. Tom in Northwest Detroit, Greg and Frazier, Chris in Detroit, Victoria and Royal Oak, Mark in Redford Township. We'll get to you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest this hour is Maria Inahosa, an award winning journalist, news anchor, and author. She is host of Latino USA, which you hear right here on WDET on Saturday mornings at 7 and Wednesday nights at 10. Uh, tonight at 7 at the Senate Theater in Southwest Detroit, I'm going to join. Maria and Julio Varela for a conversation, a live conversation, about some of the things that we're talking about on the show today. Super Tuesday, 
politics, immigration, southwest Detroit, all of the things that are going on around us. You can join us for that as well. You can find tickets and information at WDET.org slash events. Maria, I want to talk a little more about what you have been doing here in Detroit. You spent yesterday out in Southwest and I understand got some of our wonderful local cuisine as well as, <laughs> as information, right? Dude, I was not <laughs> expecting, honestly, to have had the best uh, arepas mm-hmm. in my life. Yeah. Right here in Southwest. <laughs> we do not mess around. No, here the arepas, in these Venezuelan arepas were like amazing, uh, delicious. And then. Um, as I was reporting on the street, you know, you guys have this thing here in Detroit, which um, that's why I love my job. I just get to go around to different cities and see fascinating things. And I was like, <laughs> you know, we were driving by and suddenly I, I said to my producer, uh, Laura, I was like, no, wait, wait, slow down. What's what's that? There's all that smoke coming out from something on the sidewalk. <laughs> on a barrel on the know? side of the I'm road, like, it's right? It's a barrel. Wait, it's like a garbage. What's... And it's like, oh, yeah, that's a sidewalk barbecue. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? And it's like, oh, yeah, it's a thing here. So, um what I was doing yesterday was really trying to get into this community for Latino USA. We're doing a, a, a piece of political reporting about Michigan, about Detroit, um, about the Latino Latina vote, how it manifests here, the particular issues that are coming up, what the community feels like. Um, you know, I, I've been to Detroit multiple times. I think the last time I was here, I was giving a lecture at Wayne State. So you know, I've I've been to different parts of the community, but this was um, a deeper dive into Southwest. And, you know, I guess, well, one of the first things I'll tell you, this was surprising to me. You know, I live in New York City, mm-hmm. um, in Harlem, actually. And it, New York City is a place where right now we are so crowded and the issue of housing. So you don't see a lot of abandoned buildings. Certainly not in Manhattan. In, it's there's just a lot of development always going on. Right. The building up. So when I drive through certain streets, I'm just like, ¿Qué pasa? Why? Why is that house boarded up? Why is that? And then, Stephen, to be very honest with you, considering that I've been doing a lot of reporting on not on the northern border, but on the southern border, mm-hmm. um, both in uh, in Juarez and then on the southern border of Mexico with Guatemala, the thousands of refugees who are seeking to come to this country and would love to make Detroit their home. Mm. And would take those abandoned buildings and fix them up like you couldn't imagine. And I ran into somebody who was on the street, in fact, flipping the chickens over in one of these huge barrels, <laughs> you know, this the smoke coming into our faces, you know. Eh, she's a Honduran woman, uh, came here a year ago with three kids. And she said, I love Detroit. Mm. Her words, yo amo a Detroit, yo amo a Detroit. I was like, is Detroit your American dream? I see. This is, I love this place. So that potential of, you know, of kind of recognizing that and welcoming that and while it's already happening here is something that is, it's going to stay with me. Um, I really love. I think that's such an interesting perspective. I mean, we hear from a lot of people who come here to visit about the emptiness and about the abandonment because it is different than other cities. And, and sometimes I think we, we don't yeah, feel you guys that, don't, right? Yeah, we you live don't in see it. it. You live it. Yeah. yeah it's, it's just something that, that we've gotten used to, but it is, it is jarring to people who come from other places, how much emptiness 
there is. But I don't know that I've heard someone come here and notice that emptiness and make that connection to immigration so strongly that that maybe the answer is to to welcome more people to this country and then try to welcome them to Detroit so that we can fill up some of those houses. I mean, we have a lot of folks in Detroit, of course, who are working on getting more immigrants to Michigan, getting more immigrants to Detroit. But I don't know that anyone makes that connection between the emptiness and, uh, and immigration. What's important for me, Stephen, is also the hopefulness. You know, the people who are, um, the, the Lyft driver actually who was telling me that he was uh, a Trump supporter um, was saying, you know, what's the difference between a refugee and an immigrant? And I'm just like, no, 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 no. Two, two different things. Yeah. Two very different things. The people I'm speaking about right now are refugees. These are people who are running for their lives. Running from something. Running from something that is terrorizing them. And so they want safety. But they are also hopeful. They are the most hopeful and, frankly, happy people because they're alive. Mm-hmm. They made it to someplace, right? So I imagine that hope in the streets of Detroit, in these communities. And I do. I wonder why the city government has not made a, we're going to welcome all of them, not put them into detention facilities, which mm-hmm. I bet people want to build and do exist around here mm-hmm. and provide you know, minimum wage work for other people. No, build a community of new folks. And by the way, the folks I'm talking about, so we understand, yes, Central American, Honduran, Guatemalan, but also Haiti, mm-hmm. Ghana, uh, Cameroon, uh, Nigeria. This is th- These are the people who are seeking hope here. Yeah. And for me, the other takeaway from Detroit um is the, the the longevity of the struggle of people here in this city, too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, slow and steady. And I was explaining to my producer, you know, maybe you don't, she's younger than me, and I was like, you know, I don't, maybe you don't remember that Michigan politically is super important. Like, for me, Jesse Jackson won this state in a mm-hmm. presidential <laughs> campaign. Yeah, 1988. In 1988, uh, everybody was like, whoa, Michigan. <laughs> I think the same thing is happening now. I mm. just hope that the people of Michigan, all of the voters, understand, like, you guys have got the power to shift a national election. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, since we're talking about immigration and Detroit, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out Global Detroit, which is an organization run by a former state legislator, former state legislator who is really focused on uh, mobilizing the potential for immigration here, and they've done a lot of work trying to convince our policymakers that we ought to have better policies to welcome more immigrants because that would solve a lot of the problems that we have here, but it would also help solve the problems that those, uh, that those immigrants have. Um, I want to, I want to go back to the phones here because Mark in uh, Redford township has uh, a really great point to, uh, to, to talk uh, about what we're, what we're talking about right now. Mark, uh, go ahead. Stephen, Maria, how are you? Good. How are you? I think it's so essential that we acknowledge, uh, immigration policies you know, here in Detroit and elsewhere because it's part of civic identity. It's also an identity with our faith because um, I just learned recently that St. Anne's Catholic Church in uh, southwest Detroit mm-hmm. is going to achieve a basilica status. Mm-hmm. And that's so important to the identity of um, the people that 
currently reside in southwest Detroit and who are former immigrants to this country and have relevant contributions you know, to our community here in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark, you're absolutely right. And uh, St. Anne's, of course, is the second oldest continuously operated Catholic church in America. What? Yes. <laughs> and right here in southwest Detroit, right near the Ambassador oh. Bridge. It's it's such a wonderful community. It's a community that I became familiar with when I was a student in Jesuit high school here in, in Detroit, and we had a, a relationship with folks at, at St. Anne's. But uh, they are going to be a basilica, which, again, just sort of doubles down on the importance of that immigrant sort of texture that we have here in, in, in Detroit. I right, mean, and faith. Yes. Faith and hope. Um, you know, I, I think often about like Harriet Tubman, you know, there's a statue of Harriet Tubman right there in the center of Harlem that I walk by every morning when I go to my gym to go boxing, Mm -hmm. because that's also kept me, kept me sane. Um, and I think about her, her faith and hope, you know, and I think that we, we understand that in a place like Detroit, eh, this is not an easy city. I grew up in Chicago. We know what the <laughs> we know what the gray skies are like. We know yeah. what the bitter cold is like. We know what this is like. And yet, in the sense that I got touring the streets of uh, Southwest is that uh, there is a lot of hope, and there is a lot of faith in this place. Mm-hmm. Now, does that translate into I'm going to go vote? And I am registered, and I realize that my vote carries a lot of weight in a primary. This is where I get very concerned about what I'm learning uh, about the history of of a place like Detroit and Michigan, where there are like kind of structural issues to suppress. Absolutely, voters. yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's one of the things that that we're, we'll see next Tuesday, right? How how that plays out, and then we'll see again in in November. Uh, I want to go back to the phones here. Victoria in Royal Oak. Victoria, what's on your mind? Hi, good morning. Hey. Hi, I was just um, reflecting upon the outcome from last night Mm -hmm. and Biden doing well. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't change my perspective. To me, he is just more of the Democratic establishment. Mm. You know, my health insurance is going up. I'm not doing better. Most Americans aren't doing better under this system, and... I don't think he's going to do anything to help me mm-hmm. or any other citizen. He's just going to be more corporate dumb and I'm done. So, so, so who gets your vote on Tuesday, Victoria? Bernie does. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And in yes. November, what happens? You know, it depends on what the DNC does. I really have to think about that because I don't want to vote for Biden. Hmm. So, so, so if it, if it's a question in November, of Biden or Trump, what would your what would your thinking look like? I probably wouldn't vote for a president. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, Victoria, that would put you right in sort of the sweet spot of a lot of other voters here in Michigan. I mean, we had this tremendous undervote on the presidential ballot last time. Lots of ballots were cast with no presidential selection at all, and and I think a lot of that was about people like Victoria. I also think that it was conservatives and Republicans who didn't want to vote for Donald Trump, but also didn't want to vote 
for Hillary Clinton. So you've got these kind of polls where people feel, I think, really marginalized. The question is, is there anything that Biden can do? And, and again, I'm not making the assumption that he is going to be the nominee because I think um, all bets are off. I, yeah, I think it would be silly early. of us. This is very, very early still. But if Biden becomes the nominee, is there anything that he could do to make Victoria say, OK, um, let's assume that Bernie Sanders endorses him. Let's just say that. Um, if he, you know, is, is, it a, is it a running mate kind of question? Is it like, let's say it's a, a progressive black woman like Stacey Abrams and Sanders is like, well, we love Stacey. And he kind of puts his like, is there something there that that Biden could do hmm. that would make you say? Because I think staying home from the polls, that is just the saddest I, we can't afford to have people doing that. Yeah. That it, the 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 decision we're making right now is so important, and there is such a difference in what Donald Trump would do in a second term and what Joe Biden would do in a, in, a, in a first or, as some people have said, in a in a third Obama term, essentially. Which is, I think, how some people are thinking about. It. I think a lot of the people casting votes for him are thinking this mm. gets us back to something that I was more comfortable with uh, for eight years. Okay, we're going to take another quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation and bring in a local immigration attorney to talk about what she's hearing from the candidates on those issues. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number. we still got a lot of folks queued up to partake in this conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. One zero one nine WDET, Detroit's NPR station, celebrating seventy years of radio in Detroit. This is Detroit Today on one zero one nine WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Maria Inahosa. She is the host of Latino USA, which you hear right here on WDET, Saturday mornings at 7, Wednesday nights at 10. <clears throat> she is also going to join me and Julio Ricardo, uh, Ricardo uh, Rivela uh, tonight at the Senate Theater in Southwest Detroit at 7 p.m. for a live conversation for the In the Thick podcast, which they host. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about immigration. We're going to talk about Detroit and a host of other issues. You can find information and tickets at WDET.org slash events. Also joining us now is Melanie Goldberg. She is a legal advisor for Justice for Our Neighbors. Melanie, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And my coworker, Magladys Bermudez, will be joining you tonight. Oh, very at good. The yes, uh, at the Senate Theater. Yeah, that'll be great. Uh, so, talk about the status of immigration policy and law right now in 2020. We've had you here before talking about the tremendous struggles that are, that are unfolding and have unfolded, especially over the last four years. What are the biggest challenges we face right now? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's a loaded question. Um, but I would say uh, as I so I did my homework looking at surveys that the candidates have filled out. And I think that the two of the issues on the on points that they've answered um, that most affect the Detroit area would be enforcement accountability, um, which includes um, ICE and CBP. 
or that would be Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Customs and Border Patrol, uh, is, you know, a lot of people don't know, but Customs and Border Patrol does not just cover the border. It covers 100 miles from any international border. And because we are surrounded by the Great Lakes and they are all connected to each other, Mm -hmm. all of Michigan is an international border, even the part that borders Wisconsin across Lake Michigan. And therefore, the whole state of Michigan is is under the jurisdiction of Customs and Border Patrol. Um, all of the candidates have um, have said that you know major changes need to be made to to all of immigration. Mm-hmm. I would say that another um, another topic or another issue of interest would be legalization of unauthorized immigrants and a plan for legal you know, some kind of plan to get a le- to a legal status. Sure. Um, and uh, I think those are probably the two bigger ones. The other ones is accountability to um, with USCIS, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, which is the agency that adjudicates applications for asylum and citizenship and green cards and for employment-based visas and, <clears throat> and family-based visas. And right now they're, um, they're, their times of adjudication are very long, and the requests for evidence and the way they're adjudicating them are not seen as fair. Hmm. Uh, are you confident that if a Democrat, for instance, if any of the Democrats who are on the ballot were to win in November, that enough of these things would change? I mean, I hear a lot of people saying, look, uh, Donald Trump is is worse for immigrants <laughs> than uh, the president was before, but that Barack Obama was not great on this issue either. That's right. And, you know, nothing is going to happen with the immigration situation until we have a Congress and president that can work together. That can figure it out. Right. Because right now, in fact, there is a DREAM Act that has passed. So that's a path to legal status for those students who are now under the DACA program. Um, and it has passed in the House, and it's sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, and it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. It's going to stay there. Uh, Maria, how, how much role does the immigration issue play in your mind in, in the way that candidates need to appeal to Latino voters? Obviously, they're sophisticated voters like everybody else. They have lots of things that they're thinking about. But that one issue, of course— resonates more with them, but but how much? Oof. I mean, a lot. Yeah. Um, I've interviewed, um, at this point, all of the candidates except for uh, Joe Biden. Um, so we're still hopeful yeah. that he'll say yes. <laughs> that he'll sit down and talk. With that him. he'll sit down and talk. I think one of the reasons why Joe Biden hasn't given us the interview is because he knows I'm going to ask him the question that I asked all the other candidates, which is, will you put an immediate moratorium on all deportations? You know, will you shut down all detention facilities immediately, shut down the construction? Um, You know, when I asked Bernie, this was, I guess, back in, I'm trying to remember, in October, November, if he would put a halt to all uh, deportations, he said no. A week later, later he changed his mind and said yes. The reason why we're saying this is because... um, those of us who cover this issue are seeing that the immigration detention and deportation mass industrial complex is alive and real. And this is a machine that is operating while we're having breakfast or going out to brunch or doing shopping. This is a machinery that is very real and that is scooping up people every moment 
uh, right here in Detroit, for example. So the kind of recognition of this needs to stop, this has gotten out of control, um, is kind of an immediate. On the other hand, there are many Latinos and Latinas who absolutely, they're thinking about um, college loan forgiveness. They're mm. thinking about small business help. They're thinking about health care, certainly. So um, how do you combine all of those two, But all, all of those issues? But certainly right now, especially given what we just saw in terms of the Super Tuesday, um, I think Biden, again, has got some real work to do mm. on the issue of immigration and sadly, having to explain how he allowed and signed on for two point, maybe close to three million deportations, deportations of people. Yeah, these removals. are family separations. These are children being left without parents. This is, you know, they say it was just criminals. Many of them were not. Or if it was a criminal, it was because you had a broken tail light, for yeah. example. Or something you did 20, 25 or years ago. Or something you did 20, 25 years ago, or fraud. Every single undocumented immigrant in this country has committed fraud. You can be deported for fraud. Right. So he needs to explain that. And that could potentially help. But yeah, a lot of voters are stung. They're just like, well, we believed in this once before. Yeah, uh, Melanie, when you mm-hmm. look at the field, which of the candidates is addressing this in a way that that makes sense to you, given what your work is? Um, honestly, I think Sanders has come out with the most, um, with, with all of them say we need change, we need comprehensive immigration reform, but he has actually stated exactly what, what needs to be done. So he wants to dismantle Department of Homeland Security, restructure ICE and Custom Board and Border Patrol, um, He says the agencies will have humanitarian missions. His focus is stemming the flow of illegal drugs and stopping human trafficking um, and ending the 100-mile border, returning functions to appropriate departments, making enforcement be under Department uh, Department of Justice and returning customs to the Treasury Department, mm. which is where they were originally. Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth, Warren, <clears throat> Elizabeth Warren is pretty progressive on her, um, on her positions as well. Um, the one who will see what he does is, is Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden. Um, interestingly, in the entire hour, though, you know whose name hasn't come up is uh, Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Um, I think people think he's probably just, out now, right? Uh, yeah, but I was just <laughs> going to mention him too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, because <clears throat> because in terms of immigration, um, what we understand is actually he's pretty good on he's immigration. He's pretty good. Yes. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it's just like no mention of uh, Bloomberg. Yeah. So he was the founder of the New American Economy, which right. is the organization of 500 mayors and CEOs from all 50 states. He's pro dreamer. Um, and in fact, Global Detroit, which you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. is part of this new American in economy. And I remember I was at the kickoff meeting here at Wayne State University when Global Detroit was was starting. And oh, we're running yeah, out, we're of running time. out of time. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, Melanie. Um, to it's be always continued. great to have. Yeah. It's always great to have you here. And of course, we'll have you back as we get deeper into the campaign season. Maria Inahosa, I wish you were here every day with us here in See Detroit. But it was wonderful to have you here. And we will get together again tonight, 7 p.m. at the Senate Theater, wdet.org slash events for tickets and information there. Uh, this is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll see you tonight, and we'll talk again tomorrow.